Uh, useless trivia, there are 42 gallons in a barrel. Why do we still use barrels as a method of measurement? Um because that's how we started, I guess. In economics, that's called ghost culture. We're not using a standard measurement because at some point in the past, we didn't use a standard measurement. And so we still don't because great. It's fantastic. Uh, Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill up the wall with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. Together we are bald and bearded. Um, we're running a little bit weak this morning. One of us just got back from Europe, and the other one didn't. So for different reasons, we're running weak. Uh, one of us yep. is jet-lagged, and the other one is just... What lagged? I just yeah, I didn't have a jet involved. Uh, but we are here. We are speaking. We are prepared to fill the airwaves with uh, economic inane- inanities and trivialities, things that mean nothing except for uh, something, which is the definition of all things economic. It's all in our heads, folks. You know, the other times you say it's all in your head. Uh huh. So economists, by definition, are uh, a a little bit on the insane edge. Yep. Uh, So we are here to talk to you about the economy, about the silliness of the banking system, about uh, blockchain and encryption, about demographics, the population of countries, and all that stuff coming together to say what's happening uh, with the strength of our economy or weakness of our economy. But before we do that, I've already given two disclosures. We are bald. We are bearded. We're a father and son team. That's the third one. Um, we are, uh, both of us, Jeff and Jake, Jeff being elder baldy, Jake being younger baldy. And I'll leave those clues to determine which one of us is father and son. (laughs) Very difficult riddles here. The Sphinx would be proud. Uh, we, uh, also are the principals at a firm that's an SEC registered investment advisory firm that is the same name as this program. This program got the name first, just letting you know, this program's had that name since 1996. We established the firm under that name in 2007. It's not a coincidence that it's the same one. It's the personal wealth coach. But just because the firm is registered with the SEC to give fiduciary investment advice in the best interest of the client doesn't mean we can do that on the air. In fact, we explicitly can't give advice on the air. We will, you will never hear us say, buy this stock, sell that stock, uh, because that's direct advice. I know there's a lot of folks on the radio that give buy, sell orders all the time. They have the freedom of speech to do that. We have volunteered to limit our freedom of speech so that we're not damaging people with it. It puts us under higher regulatory constraints, which leads to the next thing. If you hear us saying stuff like that, buy this, sell that, or saying things that sound dangerous to the public or an individual, the people to complain to are the SEC. That's who the firm's registered with. Well, you know, they can complain to us too. Yeah, you can complain to us. You could say, hey, you shouldn't say that. We'll change our behavior if it's wrong. I'll guarantee that. Yeah, uh, and that is that is the truth. So having said that, it's pretty explicit now that the, the SEC doesn't 
um, give us a great deal of kudos or thumbs up or anything. Just this is one of the things that when a firm registers with the SEC, the SEC wishes everyone to know that they're registered with the SEC. But also we have this follow on requirement to say that the SEC neither loves nor hates us. They don't give us great approval or uh, disappointment. Uh, they are our regulatory authority. They are not. Dis- disappointment? Well, they might eventually get, you know, they give a a, a a letter saying, don't do that again. I guess that's their version of disappointment. Uh, I, I would say it was disapproval, but anyway, go ahead. Well, a disapproval might be there. They don't approve or disapprove. They they don't, well, they, they can definitely disapprove, uh, but they don't feel emotions about people. So we're, we're not uh, a golden child or something like that. So... That's a, a probably way too long-winded definition of why we so, tell you that every week. But it's kind of cool to know once you know it. Um, let's see. What's the other one? We don't pay for this program. We are not paid commercial programming. Uh, we also don't get paid to do that. So we're some form of, of economists that aren't making money from the things that we're doing. What? Uh, yeah, we've been volunteering to do this program through how many iterations of corporations have owned this the ktem while we've been doing the program i think when i started lynn woolley owned the station yeah so it's gone through a series of first uh, single person ownership series of corporations now town square media owns it uh and through this entire thing we've just continued our insanity of working for free on a saturday morning to attempt to educate the world um we don't get paid for it. We don't pay for it. We do buy advertising on their uh, uh, on their channel uh, for this program. We actually advertise for it. They do too. When we get normal market rates, we're not discounted in any way for doing it. Uh, so there is no quid pro quo, Senator. <laughs> Why do I tell you all of that stuff too? Full disclosure is a habit. And if once you get into it, it's really important to stay in it. Uh, it's really nice to know from the perspective of the listener, what's reliable and what isn't. If we're recommending something and we're getting paid for recommending that, you should probably know about that. We're not. Um, You have your favorite and most impressive of our disclosures to give now, sir. Well, the information that we present on this educational program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. That's actually a big thing. It is. Because there's a lot of information out there that may not be correct. There's a lot lot of of information out there that's correct that is interpreted incorrectly. And there's a lot of sources for information that seem to not particularly care about accuracy or completeness or balance or anything else. So it makes life interesting. We're going to talk about uh, what happened this week in the market. Um, And... I, I, I hesitate to do this because this is his area. He usually does this so well. Okay, the S&P 500 stock index, which is the one we follow, and you got a weird-looking foot. Was it really loud or something? Yeah, because I've oh. been, I had the microphone volume way up because you have been so quiet. All right. And then you jumped in. All we, right, use the we, S- we use the S&P 500 stock index when we quote the market, and there's a really good reason for that, and this week has been a prime one. The Dow Jones Industrial Average went one way, the NASDAQ went another way, and the S&P 500 went yet another way uh, this week. The S&P 500 represents about 80% of the capitalization on the New York Stock Exchange. 
As a result, it generally, we think, gives a more accurate picture of what the whole market is doing. So that's why we use that. This has been a really interesting week, by the way, um, with the Dow going one way and the S&P 500 going the other. Anyway, the S&P 500 this week rose 1.65%, finished the week at 4191.98, which is cool. That's the highest weekly close this year. Actually, Thursday's was just a couple of points higher, but it's churning along. It's now up 9.18% since the year began. It's 17% higher since its low last October and 7.45% since this time last year. Now, that may not impress you too much, but the long-term return, when I say long-term return, that includes piece together everything going late 19th century, is around 7.45%. So what we've actually seen over the last year is the market behave pretty much on average, if we just look at the averages, as it has behaved for this century at least, which is kind of impressive because you all think, it's, if you read the headlines and everything, you think it was something terrible happening. So the S&P 500 is up 12.5%. I'm no, sorry. It's down 12.5% from where it was in January of last year, but it's up over 17% since it's low last October. So you can come at that any way you want to. Uh, it's about 40% years ago, which is a really good rate of return. He's just covered S&P 500 and why we use it. It's a fantastic measurement device. It's got its own problems. We talk about the problems regularly. The bigger companies in there have a much larger effect on the S&P 500 than the little companies. That's called capitally weighted. The larger the company, the bigger the impact, which is kind of the way you want it if you want to, you don't want a company you've never heard of moving the entire S&P, where a big company like Microsoft or Walmart, uh, when they move, that has a bigger impact. You can actually see the whole index move. So perspective is where we're coming at from measurement from all of these different places in time. We're way, way, way up if you look back 10 years. If you look back three years, we're massively up, but four years, not as much up. Well, how can that be? Well, because three years ago, we were still recovering from the, the crash of the pandemic. Uh, we were way, way down. And if you look at a three-year track record right now, everything looks good because everything was so far down three years ago. We've been saying this is coming at some point. Um, so uh, the S&P is up for the year. Uh, well, the CRSP mid-cap value index is down for the year. It's down 3.1% this year. And, and again, that's odd because uh, it's been the one that's been recovering fast. It's the reason why that's happening is because they have a bunch of mid-sized banks in the CRSP mid-cap value index. And all mid-sized banks are being hit hard by the failure of those three banks and for, for good reason and bad reason. And this is one of the favorite things that when we're talking about this area, um, we can point at where the market is oversold really easily. And we can park point at the point where the market is overbought easily. When a whole group of companies is being valued by the market at about half of its net worth, its book value, the book value in, in the stock market is what you would call a net worth for an individual. You take all of the assets minus all of the liabilities. That's the book value. And when the market puts a value on a company by uh, selling it enough that it's below its own book value. So the market is saying, um, I, I won't buy this for more than uh, 10 when the book value on it is 20. That's half the book value. 
why does the market do that? Well, that's because the market sold it because they were afraid of everything in the area. Now, there's sometimes when that's not a good thing to buy, so you have to jump in there and do the research. But this generally means that it's on half price sale. And we're seeing that in this whole sector of the market, a big bunch of very, very big sales occurring on stocks that and companies that are still very profitable. So that's kind of exciting. It means that the people that make their living picking stocks in that area are having a lot of good things to pick from. Now, the bad news is that a lot of money is leaving that area of the market. That's why the prices have fallen. So at the same time that the professionals are saying, I want to buy this stuff, it's really cheap, the investors are saying, no, get me out of there. So it's kind of a fascinating scenario that's going on here. This is why we tell people in the up markets to maintain reserves, because in the down market, it's harder to get loans. That's part of the reason why the market is down. So you can't get money easily to just dump it into cheap stocks. So filling your reserves up when things are going well so you can make purchases when people are panicking out of things that are high quality. And we're seeing that, a lot of that going on in the mid-size area of the market, mid-value particular. Um, the yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury note went up to 3.7 this week. Last week, it was 3.39. That's a big move. Uh, the yield's up more than as a percentage of itself, 9% this year, which is uh, not good for long-term bondholders. Uh, it can be for new purchasers. Uh, the yield curve is still inverted. That means that the longer-term loans are paying a lower interest rate than the shorter-term loans. That's backwards. Usually, you want to buy a car uh the interest rate on that is going to be lower than buying a house. Well, in the bond market, you should have the same kind of relationship between maturities. The shorter maturities should be low interest and the longer maturities should be higher. That's upside down. And that's a, a often a warning that the economy is in trouble because a lot of growth in the economy is funded with shorter term loans. An example of that is if a company is looking to expand uh, and they take a shorter term loan, of, say a five-year loan, and the interest rate is cheap, then they hire people and they buy equipment. If that interest rate is expensive, they'll either hire few people, fewer people, or won't hire at all. And if they've already hired people based on only being able to afford them with loan money, then they start laying off. And that's what we're seeing. So this this inverted yield curve is usually a, a red flag warning, hey, the economy's in trouble. But we've been in an inverted yield curve since July of last year. We're getting close to 12 months. We're still at the 10-month point, but it's getting there. And that is one of the longest periods of inverted yield curve recorded. Uh, and it has a lot to do with the way the Federal Reserve is selling its bonds back into the market. That's something that is a relatively new tool for us to track, uh, it wasn't done the same way. They didn't buy as much or sell as much into the market in previous times. So the inverted yield curve is directly related to the Federal Reserve's actions. But it also makes it harder to hire people. It makes it, uh, for especially for big growth companies that are operating with a thin margin with, with the expectation 
of being very, very profitable in the future, um, but they're operating on a thin margin, an interest rate increase causes them to stumble and fall down. They have a lot of trouble with that because that margin just got thinner or it went negative. They suddenly aren't making a profit. And if you're a growth-oriented company that's not making a profit, people start to get worried, especially if you had a profit last year. So just imagine new company, you're doing well, you're making profits, uh, you're projecting them into the future. If you can just get your product to more markets, you hire more people, you've got got these cheap loans, no problem, you've got them hired, you are just got to go another six months or 18 months, and you're going to hit that point where you are uh, doing well and then interest rates go up. And that makes it more expensive. So you have to lay off people. And that means your expectation of hitting that break-even point in 18 months goes out to 24 months or longer. Or you say, at this interest rate, we can never break even. So that causes a lot of these new companies to go belly up. Um, It causes uh, banks to have to change how they're doing business as well. Um, All right, so what else is going on? That that was the inverted yield curve. Um, The longer-term rates are increasing. As I said, the 10 years up um, to 3.7. Last week, it was at 3.39. That doesn't sound like a big jump if you're looking at your mortgage prices and so on. But as a percentage of that yield, that's a big change. It's a big jump up uh, on that yield curve. Uh, so it looks like if we steadily keep increasing those longer term yields, then we might come out of this inverted yield curve. Not that it's going to make it easier to hire people if the interest rate's still high on the short term. So that those are both kind of important factors. West, West Texas Intermediate Crude, uh, that's uh, how we measure the price of oil. Um, the In Europe, they measure it in, in Brent. And here we do it in WTI. Uh, and this week, uh, West Texas Intermediate was up 2.3%. Finished the week at 71 $71.70 a barrel. Uh, useless trivia, there are 42 gallons in a barrel. Why do we still use barrels as a method of measurement? Um because that's how we started, I guess. In, in economics, that's called ghost culture. We're not using a standard measurement because at some point in the past, we didn't use a standard measurement. And so we still don't because, great, it's fantastic. Uh, uh, and it, I know this is useless trivia, but it talks about the same kind of habit when we talk about behavioral finance. When you're typing on a computer keyboard, you're generally, most people, vast, vast majority of people are using the QWERTY keyboard. And that's a keyboard that was designed to be slow to type on. Your your E button, which is one of the most used letters, it is the most used letter in the English alphabet for American English, is the ring or middle finger. It's the middle finger of your left hand. That is not a dominant hand and it is not a dominant finger. Well, why did they make a keyboard that was slow to use? Well, in a mechanical keyboard, or you had mechanical arms that had to reach up and hit a ribbon of ink and make an impression like a stamp onto the paper. And if those arms were too close together and kept getting used together, like the most common letters would be, the arms got tangled up. One was coming back while the other one was going down. So they had to move the letters physically farther apart. And the ones that were used most be put farthest away from the ones that were also used most. So why do we still use a QWERTY keyboard? Well, because that's what most people learn to type on. Well, what if they taught a new keyboard? And I tried this, by the way. This is useless economy, econ- economist activities. 
I use the Dvorak keyboard. Well, what is that? It's a keyboard designed to type faster. If you do a lot of typing, it's better to use that. You have to retrain yourself, but it's a much, it can increase your typing speed by 20% if you're just an average typer in both cases. So that's a big, big switch. So why do we still teach QWERTY keyboards for typing? Well, because that's what everybody uses. Well, when I switch, this is great. I have my faster keyboard and I put it in my desk and IT comes into the room and starts trying to fix my computer or update my computer. And there's screams of anguish and frustration because they didn't learn the Dvorak keyboard. It's a standard. It's a slow standard, but we all use it together. Do you have a wrap up for the last 30 seconds? Wow, that's going to be a hard one to do. Um, the economy is running along very well, much better than anyone expected it to run at this point, despite all the leading indicators that said we should be having a recession right now. The Fed has said they're probably going to pause interest rates. I think it's a very high probability that next month when they meet, they will say, we're not raising interest rates right now. We're just watching. Uh, the debt ceiling has got everybody scared, including us. And that's kind of the wrap up. Yeah. Um, the, market's, keep, the market's up a bit. Keep your reserves in good shape. Keep your debts paid down. Live within your means. That's true in an up market, down market recession or booming economy. Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually do give customized investment advice and portfolio management to people of relatively high net worth. Um, you can reach us locally. There's voicemail during the weekend, real live people during the week uh, at 254-947-1111 or toll free 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. And there you can find our newsletter and sign up for it. You can see our famous made for radio faces and our wonderful staff. Uh, you can uh, contact us through the contact form or directly through email at jeff at tpwc.com, jake at tpwc.com. Until next week, this is the Personal Wealth Coach.